What a joy to gather together with the body of Christ. Even so far in the service, isn't it amazing how the Lord has gifted his body so many different ways? Let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Sovereign Lord, who sits in the heavens and sees the nations rage and laughs, who sees the kings of the earth taking counsel against his anointed and holds them in derision. We come to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling, to kiss the Son, and to take refuge in him. As we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would pierce our hearts to break through our stubbornness, our rebellion, and our indifference. May we see with eyes and hear with ears, turn from our sin and be saved. May we hear the words of life and walk in them. Will you send your spirit to convict, to instruct and empower? And will you transform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that he might be formed in us? This is our prayer in his name. Amen. Over the past three weeks, we've been looking at what membership means to us here at MCC. It's not our custom to preach topically, but it can be helpful from time to time to step back from our usual study and exposition of Scripture to look at a particular subject, to study in a summary or synthetic fashion what the Scripture teaches on a particular subject. So as we look at the topic of membership, keep in mind that there's more we could say on the subject. There's a lot more that we could cover in the series. There are additional truths that we don't intend to minimize, but we trust what we have presented is true nonetheless. One of the great dangers of topical sermons is that you might preach part of the truth as though it were the whole. And so we want to guard against that. And I just remind you because I'm going to be skipping and summarizing a lot this morning. Let's begin as we did last week by reading the affirmations of membership. You'll find those on the back of your insert. And you can follow along as I read. Membership affirmations. In joining myself to Martinsdale Community Church, I affirm that I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I have been baptized after coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have read, substantively agree with, and will not oppose the MCC Articles of Faith. I will gather with regularly and use my gifts to serve and edify the body at MCC. And what we'll focus on this morning, number five, I will participate in the biblical process of lovingly dealing with sin in the body at MCC. And six, I am willing to follow the shepherding of the leaders at MCC. So this morning we'll focus on dealing with sin in the body and following the shepherding of the leaders. And if you think those are two big and challenging topics to press into a single sermon, I would encourage you to contact Pastor Jeremy and let him know that I was right. (laughs) 
Uh, we do have a lot to cover, so we'll move briskly and keep in mind there's much more we could be saying on these subjects. First, in our affirmation that we will participate in the biblical process of lovingly dealing with sin, we have a commitment to confront. A commitment to confront. And what I've done is I've listed uh, a number of verses here. These verses after a commitment to confront are ones I'm not going to even touch. Uh, I list the others as we'll go along them, but there's a lot more to be said, so you have those references you can look at. We've taught on this subject several times, many times, and it's a regular part of our corporate life. The basic steps of confrontation are spelled out in Matthew 18. They're pretty simple and straightforward. You can look at those yourself. It's not an unfamiliar idea to you, I trust. Uh, But start in Matthew 18. And because that's familiar, we're not going to focus on those steps in particular. If your brother sins, go and confront him. Just the two of you. If he listens, you've won your brother over and we're done. If he doesn't listen, you take one or two more with you, and so you establish the charge. If he won't listen to them, then you bring it to the church, and if he won't listen to the church, then you let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's it. Those are the steps, fairly straightforward. But I'd like to give you a single sentence that I think can help you remember the pattern in or behind confrontation. The pattern of confrontation. All three of these points will flow into a single sentence. First, we confront known sins. We confront known sins. In Galatians 2.11, we read, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And then in verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Why did Paul confront Peter? Why did he condemn him or oppose him to his face in front of the other brothers? Because they were acting hypocritically. They were acting sinfully. We don't confront because of a difference of opinion. And we don't confront because we're suspicious. We confront because sin has occurred. There'll be times when you go to your brother to ask, perhaps for clarification, letting him know you have a concern, and that's different than confronting sin. What we do when we confront, or what we confront, is sin and not just a difference of opinions. So we confront known sins, and then second, with a desire to restore. We confront known sins with a desire to restore. Our desire and confrontation is that our brother might be restored from their sin. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So when a brother wanders from the truth, as we learned not too long ago in James chapter 5, if you go after him, you bring him back. 
That's the whole point of confrontation. He's wandering away. We want to bring him back. We want to restore him. We want to protect him from the danger that he's in. Leviticus 19 defines loving your neighbor as speaking frankly with them over their sin. Uh, Probably second to Matthew 18. Leviticus 19 should be in your heads in regard to confrontation. We speak frankly to our neighbor and the opposite is slandering or taking vengeance or bearing a grudge. We don't confront because we're fed up and we've had enough. We don't confront to get revenge. We don't confront in order to hold something against someone. We confront in order to restore them. That's our desire, not to get even with them, but to help restore them. We confront known sin with a desire to restore and third, with a willingness to forgive. We confront known sin with a desire to restore and a willingness to forgive. Immediately after Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 18, right after he finishes his discussion, Peter comes up and has a question, and it's not random. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Peter, of course, thinking that he upped the number to a very high number, and Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or some uh, manuscript, 70 times seven. So when we confront someone, if our brother sins, Peter phrases it that way, how many times should I forgive him? When we confront somebody, we are willing to forgive them. That heart is critical when we go to confront them. We're we're not holding a grudge. It's not our own anger, our own personal offense that we're confronting. We're confronting their sin, hoping to restore them, and we're ready and eager to forgive them if they will repent. That's what we confront for, that they might be restored. And that willingness to forgive ought to come from our hearts. I think the willingness to forgive makes it plain that we're not seeking vengeance. It's pretty hard to get vengeance and be ready to forgive at the same time. You can't do it. We're not going to make them pay. We love them. We're ready to forgive them. So that's the pattern. We confront known sins with a desire to restore and a willingness to forgive. Now, I'd like to look further at the purposes of confrontation. Why do it? What's the goal What is the purpose of the confrontation? As we've already seen, one of the purposes, if they repent, if they listen, the purpose is to restore them. That's the point. But what if they don't listen? Then what's the point? If they do not listen, if they listen, the point is to restore them. If they will not listen, then what is the point? If they don't listen, they won't repent. They continue in their stubbornness and sin. And ultimately, they're removed from the body. What's the purpose? And it can seem harsh and cold, even unkind to do that. Why would the Lord have us do that? I'd like to offer three purposes. There's probably more, but at least three purposes that the Bible gives for removing a person if they refuse to listen. 
And I hope these three points will offer some clarification and give us some courage to carry out a very difficult and often painful step. Three purposes when they will not listen. Why do we remove them from the body? Number one is to chasten the sinner. To chasten the sinner. That, even that statement sounds harsh, doesn't it? To our ears. To chasten the sinner. Second Thessalonians 3.14 If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. That pictures the process of removing them. But then Paul goes on to say, that he may be ashamed, or that he may be put to shame. The point is, the act of removing someone from the body is a rebuke. It is a chastening to that sinner, with the hope that even though they're removed now, that perhaps someday they might come to their senses. So even if we do not win our brother over, even if they won't listen to us and they won't repent and they won't be restored, we stay away from them, we avoid them, we have nothing to do with them in order that they might be chastened. That's actually one of the stated purposes for the process. Second, and this is probably the more dominant reason Throughout the Bible, the second reason for doing this is to guard the church, to guard the church. First Corinthians chapter five, Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. So it may appear to be harsh to stay away from someone who used to be a part of our body. It may seem unloving to avoid a person. But why does a doctor amputate a leg? Why is a limb removed from a person's body? It is because the doctor knows it's this amputation or it is death. If the infection spreads to the rest of the body, the whole body will die. It's not because, or is it not because the infected member is going to kill the entire person if it's not removed? Is it an extreme measure to cut off a limb? It's very extreme. But it is necessary to save the life of the person. Is it an extreme measure to remove a person from the body? It is an extreme measure to remove someone from our church, but it's necessary to protect the body. Just considering the issue of leaven, you cannot have leaven in a lump of dough without the entire lump becoming leavened. It can't be done. That's the whole reason for the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Old Testament, which brought or or initiated the exodus from Egypt. The whole point is to show you, you cannot contain sin within a body without it spreading to everyone else. We don't have time to look at it in depth, uh, but in Deuteronomy 13, Israel is warned to put anyone to death in their midst who would entice them to follow other gods. You've heard that before, I'm sure, and that was a capital offense. They were put to death if they did this. 
Listen to what Moses says, because it can seem to us unkind, unfriendly. Could God really mean that? I think the answer is clearly yes. Moses says, listen to the description. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul. That's the description. If any one of those people entices you to go after another God, you should not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. This is the picture of stoning that we know from the Old Testament. The passage in, this passage in Deuteronomy 13 is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 in relation to removing the evil person from your midst. That's how he finishes the chapter. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, of course, we don't put people to death. And I wouldn't want to if we had the authority to. I would disagree with some of our other Christian brothers who in past history have done just that. That's not our goal, but we do put them out of the church. We do remove them from the body. And we do so in order to guard the church from their corrupting influence. A third purpose of the process of confrontation, even if a person doesn't listen, a third purpose is to purify the saints, to purify the saints. When Ananias and Sapphira were put to death by the Holy Spirit, do you remember what the result was? They all went away happy, cheerful, giddy. No. They were in fear. They were in awe. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. 1 Timothy 5.20, we're given an example. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Again, I, I get that sounds harsh. Why? Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. I don't know about your family, but I think in most families, when one child gets disciplined, what do the other children tend to do? get their act together, right? All of a sudden, we've got an angel on our hands, but they didn't get spanked. It was their brother who got spanked. Well, there's a similar picture for us, even as adults, that when we see the Lord's severity, the Lord's discipline on one person, the rest of us stand in fear. The reasoning, I think, is clear. When we put someone out of the church, we who remain stand in fear, We recognize where our own sin might lead us. We realize the sin perhaps we were taking lightly in our own lives is far more serious than we thought. And that is a purifying act. This line is repeated over and over in Deuteronomy at the end of of these uh, capital punishment statements. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. 
So when someone acts presumptuously, why put them to death if they're enticing us to follow other gods? And part of the reason is that everyone else can stand in fear and not do what they did. So even when a person does not listen and never repents, we carry out the process so that they're rightly chastened, the church is protected, and the saints are purified. Now, I'm sure you know we could say a whole lot more on this. There's a ton of questions we could answer about this, but we have to move on to our final affirmation, a commitment to follow, a commitment to follow. I think Greg's taking questions during the ABF, Greg Rolak. I'm just kidding. He's, I don't think he is taking questions, setting him up. Our sixth and, and final affirmation is a commitment to follow. I am willing to follow the shepherding of the leaders at MCC. Now, if you read your Bible faithfully, I don't think it's so surprising that you hear you should follow your leaders. What's surprising is that it has to be said you need to follow your leaders. After all, the title leader means what? (laughs) To lead. And if you're leading, what does that imply? That others are following But in our individualized society, I don't know if this is unique to our nation or the West in in general, freedom is emphasized, but often misunderstood. And our individual rights are emphasized nearly to the exclusion of everything else. And so it's necessary, it's critical that we remember the church is not a free-for-all. We have leaders and we're committed to following them. For the sake of brevity, I've summarized the New Testament teaching in regard to our leaders into three one-word commands. Just real straightforward, real simple, three one-word commands. There's a lot more that the New Testament teaches, but these commands are repeated multiple times in the New Testament. First is honor. Honor. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So we respect those who labor among us and who are over us, and we esteem them very highly in love. That's the first command, is that we need to have an attitude of respect and honor toward our leaders. That's not a new thing. Remember with Moses, when there were some who did not honor him and said, who are you? We can offer incense, right? And then what happens when they try to offer the incense? The Lord says, okay, I'll consume that. And he consumes them all. They're all burnt from fire that came from heaven. Honor our leaders. Uh, You know, turn to Jude. This is a... Interesting, I've I've been intrigued by Jude of late, but there's a a couple of statements that he makes that I just don't, I don't see them stated so plainly elsewhere, and they're really powerful. Jude, just one chapter, verse 8, there's a a conflict of authority. 
And what Jude explains is that the Lord has established authority. It comes from him. And the authority is denied or it's ignored by these wicked people. So verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Probably angels, but whatever they are, they blaspheme or rail against the glorious ones. Okay, what's the big deal? Well, when the archangel Michael, archangel, archangel means probably chief angel or highest angel, or of the highest order of angels. So we have an archangel, Michael, and he's contending with the devil. He's fighting over apparently the bones of Moses or the body of Moses. It's pretty intriguing. What, what is going on? He's fighting over the body of Moses. Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. So here we have the highest angel we are aware of, and he's fighting with the devil, who apparently is higher than he is. Interesting. And when he contends with him, you know what he will not do? He will not pronounce a judgment or a a blasphemous judgment against the devil. But instead, he says, the Lord rebuke you. Which means the, the archangel Michael fighting with the devil who, uh, spoiler alert, is wrong. He's, he's fighting with him and he says, I will not pronounce the judgment myself. Does that remind you of something in the Old Testament? Reminds me of David who even though Saul was out of his mind, he would not touch the Lord's anointed. And David kept saying, the Lord will deal with him. I will not lift my hand against him. Okay. So in, in Jude, we see, and elsewhere we see there's, it's critical. It's essential that we honor our leaders. We understand the structure that God has set up. That's good for us. And it's right to do second command in regard to our leaders is imitate. So we honor and we imitate. That idea really is contained in the word follow. If you're following someone, what are you doing? You're, you're imitating them to some extent. You're following them. But the Lord's not after a crude uh, cloning. That's not at all what he's after. Do you see the Lord clone anything? Everything he does is so unique and so precise and different. Rather, what he wants is sons. When your son grows up, you do not want your son to look just like you, to sound just like you, to do everything you do. What do you want from your son? You want him to be like you, but not you. You're different. You're unique. You're individuals. You're not identical, but you are alike. You are alike. That's what imitate means here. We don't look to our leaders and externally mimic what they do, but we do follow their example. Paul says in Philippians three seventeen, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
So your leaders are an example to you and you watch them and you learn from them and you imitate in that way. Most directly, Hebrews 13, 7, and why don't you turn there because we'll have two verses to look at. Hebrews 13, 7, the author of Hebrews says, remember your leaders, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And I love that picture. This sentence is so great. You look at the way that they live, you see the outcome of their way of life, and you don't imitate that. You imitate their faith. Because God's made every one of us unique. So we can't go around, well, so-and-so does this, so I'm going to do that. No, no, that's not what we're imitating. We're imitating the attitude, the manner of their faith. And each one of us can remain individual and unique as God has created us, but we are looking to other examples within the body to follow and to imitate their heart. And that will, be, that will maintain our uniqueness as individuals. So we honor, we imitate, and third, we submit. Submit. Uh, you're in Hebrews 13, 17, so look, I'm sorry, you're in Hebrews 13, so look at verse 17. The Christian life is a life of submission from start to finish. And in the church, it's, it's vital that we submit to our leaders. So verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Your leaders will give an account for you, and they're watching over your souls. They're looking out for your spiritual well-being. So let them watch over your souls with joy. Let it be a pleasure for them to help you, to serve you, If you kick against it and you're unwilling to submit, they won't be able to help you in the way that God's designed them to. If you stiffen your neck and kick against their leading, they begin to groan in their labor and it's a pain, the work that they're doing. And guess who that will hurt? It will hurt you because they're trying to serve you and help you. Like a little kid who's got a splinter in their finger. It hurts, it hurts. So we'll come over here, sit down, hold still. Oh no, don't touch it, don't touch it. Is the little child hurting their parent by doing that? Perhaps, but the point is, it's of no benefit to you if you're like a little kid running around. Don't touch my finger, it hurts. Just hold still. We'll get this over with in five minutes. It'll be just fine. We'll pull that splinter out and you'll be on your way. The Lord would spare us so much pain if we would willingly submit to our leaders. So those are the three commands, honor, imitate, and submit. Now I've added a fourth point here that I hope balances it out. And that is to keep perspective. Keep perspective. 
Your leaders are fallible servants. I have two realities in mind here. One, they're fallible. This is very important to know and remind them of it frequently. They make mistakes. They're wrong, oftentimes. And Paul tells the Ephesian elders in uh, Acts chapter 20, he says to the elders from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. And the context there is clear. He's not saying just from the church of Ephesus. He's saying literally from among you elders. I don't think that's a prophecy that will be fulfilled in every church, but I do think it's potential. So your, your elders, your leaders are fallible. They're also uh, servants. They're also servants. And what I have in mind here is in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God willingly. And then he says that Christ is the chief shepherd. So the elders are under uh, shepherds. They're not the, the main deal. They're not the top of the pyramid. The elders are servants who are under a sovereign. They don't serve out of their or for their own benefit. They serve for your benefit. And they serve underneath a master. They have a master that they are serving. And I think that perspective is critical that we remember. This is part of why in, in our church we have votes on things. It's not because... Uh, you know, we just like democracy and we do it whenever we can. We do it as a, a, a check, as an accountability to the leaders so that if the body agrees, hey, you guys are out of your minds, what are you doing? Then the leaders will take heed and say, we've got to rethink this. We have some explaining to do and we have some persuading to do or maybe we have some repenting to do. Maybe we were totally off on this. But that accountability is critical. It's welcomed by the elders. Uh, you've heard Jeremy say so many times how thankful he is that he is not the, the head honcho, the senior pastor, that he is one among many because we all need each other and we all submit to one another. So we keep that perspective as we look at the issue of following our leaders. Now, finally, I want to consider with the rest of our time something that relates to both of these affirmations and something we really haven't addressed in the past. So I'd like to conclude our time with considerations on changing churches. Maybe that surprises you. It actually fits right in here with following your leaders. Considerations on changing churches. I want to address it for two reasons. First, it's not uncommon in our church. I'm confident even here now we have visitors who are coming from other churches. Is that okay? Is that wrong? Are they sinning? I want to address it for for that reason so that people coming to our church can know how to join with us in a godly way. But also because as I just said, we need to submit to our leaders. If that's the case, then is it ever okay to change churches? If they're my leaders, how how could I ever change churches? The short answer is, yes, it can be okay to change churches. No, submission to your leaders does not mean that you can never 
change churches. But there are many wrong ways to go about it. And so I think it'll be helpful to lay out some considerations for changing churches. Now, I think there's a lot of specific situations uh, that change, and I can't possibly address all of those. But if you're faithful to apply these four principles, I think you'll be on the right path to changing churches in a godly way. That's what we want to do. Whatever we do, we want to do it for the glory of Christ. And so if we're changing churches, we want to do that for the glory of Christ. If you're coming to this church, we want you to do it to the glory of Christ. And if you're leaving this church, we want you to do it for the glory of Christ. So these four principles, I hope, are helpful. First, be faithful to address the problems. Be faithful to address the problems. What problems? Well, in general, if you want to change churches, <laughs> there's a reason. Something's wrong. You don't just randomly decide you want to go somewhere else. Perhaps there are uh, work-related reasons. Perhaps you have to move. Perhaps there's great persecution like there was in the early church where the church was scattered throughout the whole land. So there are cases or times when there aren't problems to address, but when you are changing churches, it's vital that you address the problems. Guess what happens if you're in a church that has problems and you leave because of the problems? You either find no church that you can join, or you find a new church whose problems you're not aware of yet. And when you get to that church, you bring your own problems. And... Guess what you're going to find out after a little while? Oh, this church has problems too. And so running away from the problem doesn't help anything. Be faithful to address the problems. Maybe there's some differences that you have of opinion. Maybe you have a preference or an emphasis in your Christian walk that doesn't really match up with the church that you're a part of. That's not wrong. That's not a problem. And you shouldn't be ashamed of it. If you acknowledge it is a preference, I maybe, this is a good example, on a morning like this, we had four wonderful hymns that we got to sing. Well, one was newer, but three wonderful hymns. What if you went to a church that was all contemporary rock music with lights and smog machines and all of that? Smog? Fog. <laughs> Fog machines. I'm, I'm from L.A. Um, you have these, these fog machines, and the music is all rock and roll, but all the lyrics are fantastic, and the people seem to love the Lord. They're following Christ, but you're in that building, and you're thinking, this music is just not my cup of tea. I can't handle this. This is really hard for me. So that is a problem. It's not a sin, though. So be faithful to address the problem. Let, your, let the leaders know, the music is really hard for me. I don't have anything against you guys. I love you guys. But every week, it's like my soul is just grating with this music. And it might be easier for me if I went to a church that occasionally sang some hymns. And Lord willing, if your leaders are godly, I don't think they're going to beat you over the, you know, the back and say, you can't do that. You need to. No, 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 no. We have different preferences. And if there are preferences that you have in place, let those be known, but don't hold a grudge. See, here's what happens in that situation if you don't say anything, is you start to make judgments in your heart. You start to think, these people aren't as spiritual. 
They just like the flashy stuff. They just like the noisy, loud music. They're so worldly. And these little judgments start to enter into your heart because you won't just admit, I'm not a big fan of the music. I don't love it. It's not, it's not my favorite. So address the problems that you have with the church. If there's issues of sin, be faithful to confront those issues. And there may come a time where you have to say, the leaders of the church, I hope never in this church, but in other churches, the leaders of this church will not deal with sin in the body. And I can't remain a part of the body that accepts sin. And what you're saying in that situation is a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If the leaders won't remove the leaven, I have to remove myself. And if that's the case, say so. And let your leaders know, I'm leaving because I don't believe that you're dealing with sin faithfully in the body. Give them that warning from the Lord. And for the sake of everyone else who remains in that body, be open about it. I'm leaving the church because sin is not being dealt with. Now everyone who remains behind in that church at least has heard from you. You believe that sin's not being dealt with in a biblical way. Okay, so that's the first one. Be faithful to address the problems, whether if there are any, whether they're issues of preference or whether they're issues of sin. Second, avoid declaring your decision. Avoid declaring your decision. This might be simple. Uh, I think what happens a lot of times is people, they're thinking about doing something. They're kind of building up the courage to say something. And by the time they actually get there to say something, it just comes out as a declaration. If you just declare that you're leaving churches or leaving the church or changing churches, you really leave your leaders in an awkward situation. Because if you declare, we're leaving this church or I'm leaving this church, what if your reasons for leaving are ungodly and your leaders are willing and able to instruct you on that and show you why you shouldn't leave for those reasons? If you just declare you're doing it, now you've set it up like it's a fight, like it's a conflict. We're leaving. And now your leaders have to say, well, you shouldn't, or they have to ask a lot of questions. What if the church that you intend to go to is apostate or heretical? What if there's issues that you're not aware of, but your leaders are aware of in the church you want to go to? Wouldn't you like the protection of your leaders to know that ahead of time? If your leaders are watching over your soul, is it possible to declare to your leaders, I'm no longer a part of this church? That's a really tricky question. If you go to your leader, whom the Lord says, follow, obey, submit to, if you go to your leader and say, hey, I just want you to know I'm not a part of this church anymore. Well, if you're not a part of this church anymore, then I'm not your leader anymore. And if I'm not your leader anymore, then you don't need to follow me, which means that you, by your own declaration, just made yourself independent of the entire church. Does that sound biblical? (laughs) I don't think so. So you don't just go and declare, this is what's going to happen. I'm leaving, or uh, I've decided that I'm going to a new church. Don't make a declaration like that. What would you do if your nine-year-old daughter at the dinner table declared that she was no longer going to be a part of this family, but was going to be part of the neighbor's household? 
it might raise some questions as to whether or not she knows who she is and whether or not she knows who you are. So don't make declarations like that. Just to avoid the, the declarations. Third, and I think these two go together, seek, the counsel, seek counsel from your leaders. Seek counsel from your leaders. This is really interesting. The, uh, in the, the references I have there, in Acts chapter 6, you have this pattern in the New Testament that develops where the leaders come to the congregation, the apostles, and they speak to the congregation and they, they ask for feedback from the congregation. So they say in Acts 6, hey, we're not going to um, spend all of our time waiting on tables because in the process, we're neglecting the preaching of God's word and prayer. And that's not a good thing. So what we want you to do is pick out from among yourselves men who are able to serve as deacons. And then they can take care of some of that administrative thing stuff so that we can continue preaching and teaching and praying. So the congregation says, that sounds good. The congregation then selects seven men full of the spirit. Then you know what they do? The apostles lay their hands on those men that the congregation had selected, and they send them out. And, well, they appoint them to the ministry, and then several of them go out. Okay, so you know that. You're familiar with that. But then uh, flip over to Acts 13. This is really interesting. We have the same pattern later on. So in Acts 13... Verse 3, this is in regard to Barnabas and Saul, or Paul. Verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want you to set aside Barnabas and Saul and send them out on a mission. So what does the church do? They fast and they pray and then the church lays their hands on Paul and Barnabas and the church sends them out. Now what strikes me about that is the humility it would take on Paul's part to be sent out by the church, to have the church lay their hands on him because he might say, hey, I'm an apostle. But he totally goes along with the the congregation with the church, then uh, go at the end of their little missionary journey to chapter uh, 14. They're making their way back to Antioch where they were sent out. And verse 26, from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they're coming back to Antioch, and Luke says Antioch is where they were commended to the work of God. So where did they get their commission? They got it from Antioch, and it was from the Holy Spirit, but who else was it from? It was from the church. So when the Apostle Paul went on a missionary journey, He asked for the input of the body. He asked for the input of the church. Now, if the apostle Paul would do that, it might be fitting that we ourselves would be willing to do that and to let the body know, to let in particular our leaders know, hey, this is my plan. I would like to do this. Does that sound like a good plan to you? 
And guess what the leaders are going to say if you have a good and godly plan? This sounds good to us. Let's pray for you and let's send you out in peace and in fellowship. If instead we come and we declare our decision, it leaves the leaders a little bit confused about what to do next. How do we handle this? So seek counsel from your leaders. Let them give you wisdom that God might have for you. When you do that, it's, it's an issue of your humility before the Lord. Lord, I know that my decisions don't stand on my own. I know that I don't stand alone, but I'm part of a body. And so when I make a decision that affects my relationship to the body, then it's good that I bring that decision to the body. Even among the elders, we would not say, here's my decision, I'm leaving the elder board, or I'm leaving this church. But we would say, I believe I, I, it's probably time for me to retire, or I'm considering doing this. What wisdom do you have for me? We submit to one another in that way. We seek the counsel and the wisdom of our leaders. And then finally, and I think this is the most important, let the Lord establish your steps. Let the Lord establish your steps. Unless the Lord builds the house, he who builds it builds in vain. And let me read Proverbs 16, 9. Such a helpful verse in this regard. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. If the Lord has established for you to go to another church or to come to this church, guess what? He can establish that. He can make it clear. And by submitting yourself to the leaders, by submitting yourself to the wisdom of the rest of the body, you're saying, Lord, I know that if you want me to do this, it will happen. You will establish my steps. Even though we might make plans, we submit them to the Lord and we allow him to make the ultimate decision. Well, Pastor Jeremy will wrap everything up next week. He'll take all your questions. And I think he said, too, you can call him any time of the day starting Tuesday, right? (laughs) Or night. That's right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the body that you have blessed us with. And we ask that you would help us to be faithful, to love one another, to submit to one another, and in particular, help us to deal with each other's sin in a biblical way. May we be patient with each other. May we always seek to restore. May we always be ready and willing, eager to forgive one another. May we never do anything out of personal vengeance or because we're bearing a grudge. But out of love, may we go to one another and speak to each other frankly, that we might love our neighbor as ourselves. And we pray that you would bless the leaders of this church. Help us to lead as Christ has led. May we be an example to the flock in our conduct and our faith and our lives. We thank you for your word, which gives us the wisdom that we need. And may we search the scripture to see if these things are so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>